Good morning, Salt City Church. My name is Drake. If I haven't met you yet, I'm on staff here at Salt City Church. And we are just going to be continuing our series through the book of Exodus. So if you have a Bible or a phone, pull it out, open up to Exodus chapter 32. But as we continue on in the back half of this book, uh, and studying this passage, there's actually a helpful breakdown of this book that I wanted to share with you all. And that is that when you look at the whole story of Exodus, the front half of this story is about God getting Israel out of Egypt. And then when you look at the back half of this story, it's about God getting Egypt out of Israel. And what that means is that they were once enslaved in Egypt. And they've been set free. They've been given a new name as God's covenant people. But it is incredibly difficult for them to learn what does it look like to live by their new name and not their previous name. Okay, I experienced a glimpse of this when I first got married. Okay, because I realized that my bachelor levels of cleanliness weren't going to cut it in marriage, right? Like, wet towels no longer served as a proper form of floor decor, right? I couldn't just leave socks around different rooms to, you know, up and go whenever I wanted. And dishes, dishes were to be done, like, right after you used them, right? Who knew? A lot of people knew that one. Uh, I I was unfortunately that roommate. Um, But here's the thing. Though I was married, I had to learn what it looked like to live in this new way of life in marriage. And so in our walk with Christ, we have gone from slaves of sin to adopted in the family of God. But sometimes it is still so difficult for us to live according to our new name, isn't it? That we have this tension between us being given this new name of saints before God, and yet we are still trying to fight to live more in that reality day by day. But as we look at this story, a question that we have to ask ourselves is that how can there be a God who is so holy and just and yet be patient with us in that process? And so the way that I want to look at that is that we're going to look at three different words as we look at this passage. And those three words are idolatry, severity, and atonement. So the first one, idolatry, let's look at chapter 32, verse 1. It says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. So to stop right there real quick. I think it's interesting to look at their wording that when they saw that Moses delayed Because was Moses delayed in coming down? No. It was according to God's timing. It's just that God's timing didn't match up with what they wanted his timing to be. Have you ever felt that? Where you feel like God's taking the long way to get somewhere, and you're just like, God, why can't you do this now? So let's continue on to see where this leads the Israelites. It says, The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know where, what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool, and made a golden calf. 
And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up the next day, early the next day, and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. So here's the pattern that we see from this text that leads to idolatry. There is a forgetfulness of who God is that leads them to see a lack of something in their life, which then leads them to turn their devotion to another God. Where do we see that in the text? Do you notice the wording in the Israelites' request in verse 1? As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. They completely took God out of the picture. The, the one that parted the seas, the one that sent the plagues, Moses is the one that brought us up out of the land of Egypt. And so we don't know what has become of this man. They completely forget the work of God in their life. And that causes them to feel a lack of something. And they say that in saying to Aaron, make us gods who shall go before us. Like we don't know where Moses went. Who are we going to have confidence in that we are going to reach the promised land? Who are we going to put our security in that we will know that we will conquer the other nations that are around us? Who will go before us? Questions that might sound familiar to us as well, like how can I know that my future is secure? What do I need in place to find that security that all will be well? These are the questions that cause the people to storm to Aaron and ask him to make them a god. So he pulls out this tool and he sculpts up this little golden calf for all the people. And the, a calf was actually symbolic to the surrounding nations, especially to Egypt, the land that they were just in. It was this symbol of strength and fertility. And even though God sent a plague to wipe out all of the livestock to show that I am greater than those gods, they take matters into their own hands and they say, let's make a calf that we can bow down to and give our devotion to. And they say these words, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And here we see the root of idolatry. They take qualities values and actions that only God deserves, and they place them on something other than God. These are the gods that brought you up out of the land of Egypt, and these are the gods that will continue to go before you. So then Aaron builds an altar in that place. They make sacrifices to this God. It says that they ate, they drank, they celebrated, and they rose up to play. And we know from 1 Corinthians that what that means is that there was rampant sexual immorality taking over the camp. They made a God that gave them what they wanted and a God that freed them up to serve the flesh, flesh-filled desires that they had to allow them to be free to do what they wanted to do in that moment. So they turned their devotion to another god. And so physical idols was a, a normal part of this day. Like there'd be people sculpting these idols and serving these idols, and it was normal across the different nations. Not as normal to us today. 
I don't think any of us are tempted to give our devotion to this little sculpture that we might see. We might appreciate art, but we're not going to give our devotion and risk everything for it, right? But today, we see the same type of devotion just carried out in different ways. One example, college football, okay? That might hit close to home for some of you. But here's what I remember. In college, going to some football games, I remember walking by tailgates, and there'd be people bragging on a freezing cold morning how they were out there since 4 a.m. And I'm like, that sounds awful, okay? And they spend all this money on their tailgate setup. They spend all this money on the tickets. Who knows how much they spend in the game? And they give their devotion to this team. Their emotions ride the roller coaster of the wins and losses of that season. Why? Because they are chasing after a transcendent experience that this is offering for them, that the victory might offer them. And here's the thing. They might get a small glimpse of that, but here's what's true about every idol in this world. Idols are things that will promise you everything, but will never fully come through on those promises. And they will never let you know how much it will cost you to serve them. So what does it look like for you, though? Tim Keller gives a really helpful, simple description of idols, and he says that idols are anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. So you might not be walking around saying, behold, this golden calf is going to deliver me. But you might say, behold, my spouse, who needs to live up to my perfect expectations of romance and serving my every need. You might say, behold, my kid, who will finally give me the validation and purpose that I long for. Behold, this next Amazon purchase that is going to make all things well, even though all the ones sitting around the house aren't cutting it for me. And here's the thing. We might know that those things aren't perfect, right? Like You might be very aware that your spouse isn't perfect. I might be very aware, like, I don't think I'm getting that validation, like more validation from having a kid. I'm, I'm feeling more tired. I know that. I'm feeling more impatient. Like, there's those things. But even though we might know that they aren't perfect, we could still be putting perfect expectations upon them that they need to live up to. They can still be the central part of our heart that causes our emotions to go up and down, to give us joy or sorrow on a given day, that gives us value and satisfaction. John Calvin famously said that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory, that where we aren't people that are maybe with our own tools sculpting these physical idols, he's saying that our hearts are architects at making idols that take the place of God. This practice is just as common today as it was back then. For you, what threatens to take the throne of your heart other than God? Because I think we'll see that only when our devotion is directed back to God, directed back to where it rightfully belongs, will we take that God-sized weight off of everything else in our life? So what that means is that a spouse can just be a spouse. 
A kid can just be a kid. A friend can just be a friend. And a job can just be a job because you're not putting God-sized expectations on them for your own heart. But as we look at this story, I think we have to ask the question, how would a holy God respond to that type of idolatry? And that leads us to our second point, which is severity. So let's look back at verse 15. It says, Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with two t- the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides. On the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing. Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. So I want to paint the picture of what happened leading up to this moment. Exodus 24, we see this incredible covenant ceremony where Moses goes to the people, and he gives them all the commands of God. He shares the book of the covenant. He shares the different laws. And the people responding with, responded with a resounding answer that all the Lord has said we will do. And a couple lines later, all, the Lord that ha, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. What's happening there is that the people are giving their I do's to God in this covenant ceremony. And so after that, Moses, hearing that from the people, he builds an altar at the foot of the mountain where he makes sacrifices to God. And then he goes up to the top of the mountain again to speak with God, and God gives him all these incredible ways that they are going to use the gold from Egypt to build things for his purposes. The Ark of the Covenant, the table for bread, the golden lampstands, the the tabernacle, all these things that they would build with their finest gold, their finest materials, and their finest craftsmanship for his purpose and for his glory. And then God tells him of some things that are going on down at the camp. And so he heads back down. And the whole time walking down this mountain, I'm sure he's wondering what might be happening, but he's also probably getting excited to tell these people, like, these are the things that we get to build. All that gold that we took, we get to use these for God's purposes. We get to make all these things for God. But then he arrives to the foot of the mountain. And he looks out over the camp with all the tents and all the people. And he sees that there's dancing. He sees that there's singing that's happening, songs of worship that's taking place, but not to the God of Israel. At the foot of the mountain, the place where he had just built an altar to God, where there were sacrifices taking place, he looks out and sees that they had built another altar. That they had made sacrifices to another God. And as he's ready to share with these people all these these ways that they're going to use the gold from Egypt, he looks out and sees that the people have already used the gold for another. And in that moment, his anger burns hot within him, and he storms to Aaron. 
And basically what he says is like, what in the world could these people have done to make you respond the way that you did? And as we look at Aaron's response in verse 22, I want you to notice something. Because Aaron gives a direct quote of how the people of Israel acted, what they said. But then when it comes to sharing about his responsibility in the matter, he skews the story a little bit, okay? So let's look at 22. And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Direct quote. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Just some textbook blame shifting going on right here, okay? So he is moving any responsibility that he has, and he's heaping it on the other people. And it sounds a lot like the garden. Like, it's this woman that you gave me. It's her fault. And this is carried on throughout the course of humanity, even for us. Like, we are really good at telling stories where we are innocent, and they're the ones that bear the responsibility. Like, it's their fault. It's their involvement in this that has caused me to act the way that I did. And that's exactly what he's saying here. He said, I just took all the gold that they gave me. They brought it to me. I I didn't do much for that. I chucked it into the fire, and voila. Like, out came flying this calf. What did you want me to do with this? Like, this calf just came flying out. I had to do something with it. And then Moses responds by saying this in verse 26. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. He said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. So Moses sees that there's just reckless idolatry happening throughout the camp. And he calls for whoever is with the Lord to come forward. And so the sons of Levi come forward and Moses tells them, I want you to take your sword. I want you to go throughout this camp and to kill every family that is still partaking in this idolatry. And so what happens is that the sons of Levi go throughout the camp of anywhere from one to two million people and killed 3,000 people that day. The severity of God's judgment on the people was clearly felt by everyone present. Can you imagine what that'd be like? Like I imagine myself with my family just at our tent as we look out over the sea of tents and all of the people of Israel. And for the last while, what we have heard are songs of celebration, yet there's a dramatic shift in the mood. Because you're no longer hearing these songs of celebration, but you're hearing cries come from people. 
And in that moment, my heart sinks. And I start to look around for like, what has happened in that moment? And I look and I see the sons of Levi going throughout the camp with their sword, killing family after family. People seeing neighbors being killed. People seeing brothers and sisters being killed. And then as the herd of men gets closer and closer to our tent, the reality begins to set in. Are they coming after me? Are they coming after Paige? Are they coming after Zeta? And that fear is felt throughout this entire camp as the severity of God's judgment is beginning to be felt for the idolatry that they had taken part in. And on that day, the blood of 3,000 people would be shed by the sword of the Levites. I don't know about you, but I think sometimes when I read these stories, there's a temptation to just fly over another number. But when you sit down with this, I think the feeling that happened in my heart was just one of being troubled. Like, really, God? That's what had to happen? You had to carry out your judgment in this way that that many people throughout that camp had to die? It seems appalling to us when we first look at this story. But when we look closer, what we see is a greater understanding of a God who's absolutely holy in every way. What we see is a greater depth of our own sin that we bring to the table. These people who just entered into a covenant with God, they just said their I do's to him and fully knew the consequences of stepping outside of that, chose to chase after another, chose to commit an adultery against the God that had just welcomed them in. We see God's holiness on display and that he hates sin and he can't just sweep sin under the rug. And it forces us as well to look within and to try to get a greater understanding of the depth of our own sinfulness. The sin that we have done through our own idolatry. But I think what's interesting in this story is that we actually only see a glimpse of the severity of God's judgment here. Because if you look back at verse 14, this is what happens when, when Moses pleads with God to, to relent his anger from his people before going back down to the people of Israel. It says in verse 14, And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. And so the Lord knows what's happening. He tells Moses about it, and he says, I'm going to bring disaster on this people. Moses pleads for him to, think of, to change his mind on that, and he relents his anger. So what that means is that the disaster and the judgment that God saw as rightly fitting for these people was not put out from him. He relented of that. And you have to ask, how could God do that? a God that is just and a God that is holy, when we look at it from God's glory, what we see is how could anyone in that camp have made it out? Everyone partook in this idolatry. How was Aaron able to make it out even after leading these people in that way? 
And that's because they had one that interceded on their behalf. That leads us to point three, which is atonement. In verse 30 of chapter 32, it says this. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, At alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold, but now if you will forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. So Moses starts off this passage by saying to Israel, you have sinned a great sin. I will go up to the Lord and perhaps I can make atonement. And you kind of have to stop and ask, like, wait, what, like, what just happened in the story? That wasn't the atonement? Like that bloodshed wasn't what needed to happen in order for those sins to be atoned? But he says, perhaps I will go make atonement. And you also notice the tone in his voice. He says, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. He's basically like, hey, I'm going to go up to God, see if I can make atonement. We'll see. Not sure. Like when you're talking to someone in the biggest moment of a great game and you give them the play to win the game, you don't want them to say, perhaps I can do it. Like I'll try. We'll see what happens. But yet that's the tone that Moses has as he's going up. Like, perhaps I can seek atonement. And God responds to him by saying, depart from here. I will send you to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you. Which that kicks off a section of this text where Moses begins to intercede on behalf of the people of Israel. He's saying, no, God, consider that this is your people. Because who are we in comparison to the other nations if you are not with us? You are the thing that makes us distinct. If your presence will not go from us, with us, do not let us depart from this place. We don't want the land flowing with milk and honey if you will not be with us. You have shown us favor in the past. Would you do it again? God's response in verse 17, he said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. God changes his course as a result of the prayers of Moses on behalf of the people. And here we see a glimpse of a God who is so near to us that he creates a covenant with his people that is the type of covenant they can bring requests to him and he acts on those things. The reality that God hears your prayers, that God acts based on your prayers, that God shows his nearness in lending his ear to us when we pray. But Moses doesn't just stop there. Because he isn't just looking for God to deliver them to the land flowing with milk and honey. He's not just looking for him to deliver them from the the different nations that might be trying to conquer them in that moment. He asks for the thing that he knows Israel needs more than anything else. And that's a greater glimpse of God himself. 
He says this line, God, show me your glory. I want to see a greater glimpse of who you are. The people of Israel and their idolatry have forgotten about you. Would you show us your glory? A glory that is so stunning that God is able to carry out his just judgment and yet be patient with a rebellious people. How? I want to turn to Romans 3. I don't believe this text will be up on the screen, but Romans 3.25 says, Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And so a lot of people would look at this passage and see a God of judgment. Paul looks back at this passage and sees a God of incredible patience. That God was being patient in passing over the sins of the people that had come before Jesus. And how could a God who is so holy relent from his anger to be poured out on people that rightfully deserved it? And that's because where the people of God saw a glimpse of the severity of God's judgment on display, in patience, God was storing up that judgment to be poured out on another. That Jesus, who lived a life free from any idolatrous ways, interceded on behalf of Israel and interceded on behalf of you and me to become the perfect atonement for our sin. Like the blood shed of 3,000 people wasn't enough. Moses going to seek atonement for the people wasn't enough. And it's shown in his tone saying, perhaps I can make atonement. He knows that he has no idea if this is going to work or not. He has no clear picture of how atonement is going to be accomplished in that moment. So where Moses looks forward with a clouded picture of how God would bring about atonement, we look back. And we see a clear example of God's glory on display at the cross of Jesus Christ. Where God showed off his glory and that he could be patient with a rebellious people and yet still be a just judge. Where God was, re- was able to remain holy and yet still draw near to his people where God was able to hold up to his end of the covenant, even when we didn't hold up to our end with him, that God was able to make atonement completely once and for all for the sin of humanity. Moses sought after atonement. Christ accomplished it. And here in this story, we see the tension of God's glory where both of those things can be held because of what happened at the cross. And when we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, when we get a greater glimpse of God's glory by looking there, I think it's going to answer two different questions that you might have when looking at a passage like this in the Old Testament. And the first one is, wasn't God's judgment in this story too severe? Well, what we see from the judgment that is carried out in this story is that it pales in comparison to the judgment that was poured out on the cross. Where the people of Israel were a rebellious people, creating idols in the place of God, Jesus was perfect. Where Moses prayed and God changed his ways and relented his anger, 
Jesus' prayer in the garden went silent. Where God relented his anger from the people, he stored it up to be poured out on his own son on the cross. It wasn't that his judgment was too severe in that moment, but that his patience was greater than we can comprehend. But there might be another group of you in this room as you look at a story like this and you you look at the life that you've lived and you might be feeling, man, I, I feel like I deserve that judgment. There's so much brokenness in my past. There's so much that I feel the guilt of that when I approach God, that's, that's what I feel. I feel him actually looking down on me in anger and judgment more than the new name that you speak about. And to you, I want to say, in one sense, that judgment is what you deserve. But the story of the gospel is that that judgment has been placed on another on your behalf. The reality is that for, that. That judgment was poured out completely on Jesus for all of your past sins, for all of your present sins that you walked into the church with this morning, for all of your future sins. That God no longer looks down on you in this anger, but he actually looks down on you in delight because you're his kid. He has given you a new name. And he wants you to know that that new name is actually what defines you, not your past story any longer that you can approach him in confidence and the weight is off of you and that you are invited into his presence this morning. And here's how we have confidence in that as a family. Because we don't serve someone that says, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. We serve a king that said, it is finished. And that king is on the throne. And as long as he is on the throne, you are his. No matter how you keep falling short for God, he will never let you go. Let's pray. Jesus, we feel our heart's temptation to wander at this this song of prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I feel that in my own heart. God, we are very aware of the things that we've put on the throne of our heart that's above you, the ways that we've turned other things to find satisfaction and value, even this past week, even with what we might be walking in this morning with. And we've tried really hard to find atonement through our own moral behavior. We've tried through our own spiritual discipline. We've tried everything we possibly can, but we know that it's not enough. And so, Jesus, we look again to you this morning, that you are the one that came as the perfect atonement for us, that your blood was shed to make us white as snow, and there's no other way to be made white as snow in your presence other than you, Jesus. So would we look to you? Help us to take our eyes off of ourselves this morning and to fix our eyes on your glory that we have been invited in to behold the full splendor of who you are. Would we lift our eyes and worship this morning? Amen.